Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. Most of the people that were of a level to um, even think about it, they were hoping maybe it would be a, a tool that they could use against Britain because uh, they lost a lot of uh, money and power during the French and Indian War, which was not that many years before. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Kim Burdick talking about the French special operation to save and free the American colonies. And she's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is sponsored by the University of Pennsylvania Press, publishers of Captives of Liberty, Prisoners of War and the Politics of Vengeance in the American Revolution by T. Cole Jones, available wherever books are sold. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On today's episode, our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor Kim Burdick, talking about the special operation that France undertook to join the American Revolution. Her article is now live at www.allthingsliberty.com, and it's a wonderful article for a few reasons. Uh, the most important is, if you're like me, if you love primary source documentation, this article is filled with it. Uh, you get to hear firsthand the experience of the French soldiers during their initial crossing to the New World uh, and the rigors and dangers and overall sort of terrible circumstances uh, that that entailed. The great asset that Kim Burdick brings to our scholarship, uh, her great weapon, if you would, uh, in this study, is that she speaks French and she gets into that during this interview, and it gives a wonderful insight into the terminology and the language and really what was on the minds of the average French soldier during the war. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Kim Burdick. Kim Burdick, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Tell us about your background. Oh, well, <laughs> I... I've always been a history geek since I was a little kid. When I was three, we moved from Binghamton um, to the boondocks of upstate New York in Shenango County where there were no kids to play with. And so I spent my whole childhood going from neighbor to neighbor doing oral history interviews, essentially. So <laughs> when one of my uh, favorite neighbors was a very elderly lady who actually gave me a doll that she received when Lincoln was um, president. So <laughs> I, I, go, I go back a long ways with history. So I was always asking them, well, what did you do here when you were a kid? Because they all grew up around there. But in a, in a world with no children, all I did was uh, oral history interviews of elderly neighbors who probably, they're not so elderly to me now, but I, I suppose they probably were 50. Some of them were still working and, um, and reading books. And so I, I've always been a history geek. 
What first drew your interest into this topic? Well, I've always been interested in French history because when I was eight, um, my grandfather's brother, who had been in France in World War One and stayed there afterwards, married a French girl, uh, his oldest kid, who's 10 years older than I am, came over. And my grandparents were sort of joking, but also deadly serious. And they said to my cousin Jack and I, now you're going to have to learn to speak French so we can speak to our relatives. So we did. <laughs> Jack and I still still like to speak French. But when Cousin John came, we were really little teeny kids, you know. And so we sang Frere Jacques and Jack bowed and I curtsied and everybody loved it. So it kind of stayed in our mind that we had connections with France. And so it was an important part of our childhood, actually. Talk about France in the 1770s. What was going on there and what was life like there? Well, actually, um, Louis the Sixteenth was a was a kid <laughs> when when he um, became the king. He was he was nineteen. He was actually the same age as Lafayette was when Lafayette came over here. But he had been orphaned at a a, a very early age and became the Dauphin of France when he was only eleven. This, his grandfather was uh, the king, and so they they raised him with the idea that he would be king. But he was a very a very shy and, and awkward child, and um, he wasn't really too sure what what to do with all of this stuff. He um, he was interested in America. He was interested in what he heard, but the um, the French population was was kind of upset at the idea of, of anything that was uh, going to cost them money because they were already still suffering from the French and Indian War. So Louis, very young guy, right, he had a policy of not raising taxes and taking out international loans. And so he, um, the country was pretty much near bankruptcy. And so he was... Um, he was kind of walking on ice the whole time. They had some droughts that caused poor harvests and famines, and <clears throat> the price of flour increased, which in turn raised the price of bread, which is a staple food. And It's kind of fun later on in, in history as you're getting the, the French soldiers over here to hear them grumbling about, about our bread. <laughs> it was so bad it must be toasted. <laughs> but he he was trying. And also, um, his wife was Marie Antoinette, and she uh, she was blamed for spending and capriciousness, and so a lot of uh, lies and uh, rumors about her sprang up. So it was a, a tricky, tricky time to be a teenage king of a country, but he was interested. So, it, you know, a lot of what happened before Saratoga was actually, uh, it, it was kind of secretive and underground. And Beaumarchais, who actually wrote The Barber of Seville and The Marriage of Figaro, he was actually also a businessman, and he was doing underground um, activities to send money and supplies to America uh, with the king's permission. How did the French government view the American Revolution before the events of Saratoga? Well, I think 
most of the people that were of a level to um, even think about it, they were hoping maybe it would be a a tool that they could use against Britain because uh, they lost a lot of uh, money and power during the French and Indian War, which was not that many years before. We're looking at... Uh, you know, 1763, and this is only in the 1770s. So they were hoping that if they helped the patriots over here, that um, that it would be a, a tool, really, to get back at England and get some other money back, which didn't happen, but <laughs> that was the goal. How did the victories at Saratoga change that? Well, they had uh, been very uh, much watching, and and they had actually um, been sending this stuff, supplies and guns and things before that, but they wanted proof that the Americans could do something. And so, and curiously enough, it's actually Benedict Arnold who really pulled off Saratoga. He was actually a a pretty good soldier, and I think... (laughs) I, th- I think that whole story of uh, of Saratoga is pretty interesting, but the um, the the fact that they could um, trust America to win at least one battle was was helpful. That uh, Louis the Sixteenth didn't decide to enter into negotiations with America until. Burgoyne surrendered, and actually there's two battles of Saratoga. We always call it the Battle of Saratoga, but there are two, and they're about a month apart, and they're both up there um, near Saratoga. And You know, I actually grew up in New York State, and so I'm, I have a particular interest, but a lot of people don't even know where that was. But if you drew a, a T on a piece of paper, the top line of your, your letter T is Quebec, and then if you do on the right-hand side of of the downward stroke, you've got Vermont and Massachusetts and Connecticut, and then over on the left side of the T, that's New York State. So these things are are closely connected with um, with what's going on in New England. But these two battles of of Saratoga in 1777 are they really considered the turning part of point of the war in favor of Americans. So once that news that we're going to surrender reached France, then the king decided it was okay to openly uh, support the Americans, but it moved it to a, a truly global um, battle. Pardon my French. Uh, I'm going back to high school here. Uh, but what was the L'Expedition Particulière? And how was it conceived? Well, that's actually when the um, when they did decide to come. It just means a special expedition, and it's kind of a, a code name for sending French and and actually some Germans, but se- sending the French soldiers to America. And um, actually, today it's still described as the only substantial force of foreign allies ever to serve on American soil for an extended period. And so um, one of the things that happened uh, to Silas Dean, who is kind of an ignored, forgotten figure in political scenes, he actually did a lot to to get um, people to come. And part of the 
part of the thing that was um, scary and confusing to Silas Dean is that the um, the French government made this deal, and they kept, they kept giving him these really wealthy, important people to become commissioned officers in the American Revolution. And you might remember that from from high school or college history that when Lafayette came, the um, Congress in Philadelphia, they were really getting upset with all these French people showing up on their door, and they told Lafayette, go home, kid. <laughs> so, so it was a, a crazy... Uh, a crazy time. So finally, uh, the Treaty of Alliance with Ben Franklin was uh, served, uh, signed in February of 1778, and that established the Franco-American Alliance officially. It had been going on for a long time before, but now it's real. So these soldiers, including Alsace-Lorraine, is right on the French and German border, so somebody like the Dupont, not the Dupont of Delaware, but the Dupont, uh, that means two bridges, and they were kind of a French and German heritage, so they went up to Brittany to get on the ships, and it was a lot, there were 5,500 um, men, mostly very well connected, that, um, that came over, and um, one of the things that happened was actually there weren't enough ships to bring everybody. They really wanted to come, and some of them weren't able to. And Lausanne's Legion, which really were horsemen, uh, they had to leave some of their horses at home. <laughs> so it, it's a really interesting time to be thinking about. And I'm interested in um, the fact they left from Brittany because my my Fernald in this country, we call it Fernald. My Fernald ancestors were from Brittany. Uh, over there, it's called Fernell. But Brittany is uh, in the northwestern part of France, and they um, they all traveled from all over the country to Brittany to get on these ships. So they um, they finally got to America July 11th of 1780, and they were... Um, absolutely essential to our success and they were uh, pretty pretty interesting guys the marquis de lafayette gets a lot of attention for this expedition who leads the expedition and what role does lafayette play in it well actually he wasn't rochambeau was much to his dismay but he was um he had come over actually he he ran away from home. <laughs> he he was uh, 19 when he got here. He was the richest orphan in France and very much probably the same age as, as Louis uh, XVI. But he had been orphaned. His mother had worked for the French court. Um, his father had been a military person, and they were very, very rich people. So Lafayette... Actually, he was just full of the dreams of um, of America. He had gone to a, an official dinner party when he was only 18, where uh, England's King George III was talking about the American Revolution. And, and Lafayette later wrote, My heart was enlisted. I thought only of joining those colors to those of the revolutionaries. So he had a ship built at his own expense, and he and some of his buddies came over on this ship and they landed 
in uh, I think South Carolina, but in one of the southern states, and then they made their way to Philadelphia. And this was right about the time that Congress was getting fed up with all of these commissioned, uh, so-called commissioned French officers who expected to be part of the American Revolution. So they told them to go home. <laughs> ben Franklin had a fit. They said, no, no, <laughs> you'll, you'll cause a scandal. Because he was one of the most important uh, families in France. And so Lafayette, who always was very smart and very diplomatic and really cared, he said, no, I don't want any money. I will, I will just serve as a volunteer. And so he did. And Washington was kind of assigned to babysit Lafayette. You know, I mean, nothing can happen to this very important kid. And he had a title, but he, he mostly wasn't allowed to do anything. But he proved to Washington and to the others. Actually, he knew what he was doing. He was a, a brilliant strategist and a very good um, diplomat. So he was at um, Battle of Brandywine where he actually got shot. Uh, he's through the winter of Valley Forge. And then for some reason, 1779 was a really slow year. Not much was going on. And so he um, he decided he would go home. He had been married when he was a little kid and his wife had um, some children and one of them died so he went home and when he's there he at first is in in trouble uh, with the French government because really he had run away and he was kind of seen as a traitor to their country <laughs> but he slowly ingratiates himself back into his his parents social circle and he gets uh, the Hermione, that historic uh, reproduction ship that came around to America a couple of years ago. He he contracts for that to come as an official ship. He does all kinds of stuff, and he's assuming that he will be the French general appointed to be in charge of the French soldiers. But in fact... Even today, if I talk to my cousins in France about Lafayette, they say, Lafayette, he was a kid, and Rochambeau was a general. And that's what, that's what happened. The, the French people uh, said thank you to Lafayette, and they sent um, Rochambeau, who was a grown-up, <laughs> to get the job that Lafayette so much wanted. So it's it's kind of a um, an interesting situation, but... One of the things I've discovered is Lafayette, of course, fought as an American soldier. He's French, but he's fighting on the American team. He becomes an invaluable liaison between the French and the Americans because he can speak both languages. He understands both points of view. and So he's really important. But the person who ends up as the... Um, as Washington's equal in our war is Rochambeau. And that's why uh, this trail I worked on for so many years was called the Washington-Rochambeau Revolutionary Route. Who were some of the other interesting characters that you met involved? Well, the ones that I really loved, uh, Blanchard was a commissary. He was in charge of getting supplies and in charge of setting up hospitals and things like that. The other was uh, Dupont, who was uh, a more military person. But I especially love those two guys because they kept really detailed journals, and they were more like... Uh, 
in some ways tourists because they'd never been here before and they were in their journals they were writing anything that they could think of that was interesting to them and uh, Blanchard in particular he part of his job was to go out and make sure there was enough wood for the encampments and he loved the trees and the flowers and the descriptions he writes of trees and flowers and birds on the way back from Yorktown my the thing that captured me in the beginning was was the first time he'd ever seen a hummingbird and somehow you have this picture of this very young middle-aged guy just moving his hands to show the size of the hummingbird but Everything he writes was just really um, so detailed and so interesting to me. And then Dupont is writing um, from a more tactical standpoint, but he's doing the same kind of thing. They're writing with fresh eyes, and they're describing what they see in such a beautiful way. What I, I love primary documents and oral histories, and I think in some ways it's... Um, to me, it's more real. I always used to, you know, quote from this famous historian and that famous historian and blah, 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 and real academic. But the more I've gotten into these uh, French journals and letters and diaries and things, the more the more alive the war becomes. It really seems more real to see what they're talking about. Your article features wonderful primary source documentation, about the crossing of the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, what were some of those compelling stories you found? <laughs> well, of course, they were all sick, you know, but it reminded me so much when I was writing it of this COVID experience that we have where we're all basically trapped inside and people are are getting sick. Well, this is what I really wanted to call that was cooped up in a ship. <laughs> but for they left Brittany, and they were on board for three and a half months. And, of course, the food on board ship wasn't very good, so the fellows were getting scurvy, they were getting fevers, all kinds of things were um, unpleasant. But one of the things that, that I thought was kind of neat was the description of the fish that they saw as they began to get closer to shorelines as they're sailing in three and a half months cooped up on a ship. But... Um, some one of them is talking about they began to see fish jumping and how beautiful they were and iridescent in the sunlight and others are talking about how delicious they were because they ate them on a different boat. <laughs> it's just it's it's just really fun to see uh, how how they saw things, but how remarkable they thought those fish were, and and that was kind of fun. But uh, mostly what they talked about was. Uh, everybody being sick and about the the fish and the landscaping. And they actually didn't know where they were going, which I think is interesting. They weren't told. They were going to America, and they didn't know if they were going to um, be on a, you know, in the south or if they were going to be where, but they were really headed for Rhode Island, where they stayed for a whole year. How does this topic help us to understand the revolutionary era better? Well, <laughs> how, how difficult it was, I suppose. Actually, I'm, I'm in the process of, of writing a, a book that is um, a lot of Blanchard and Dupont and some of the other ones, Shostelux is one of them. But using these journals and diaries and letters, 
so that they can tell their own story of what it was like to be soldiers in America. Uh, you'll you'll find in that um, Journal of American Revolution, the the last article I wrote was about readouts nine and ten. By which time, uh, it had become a world war, and how that that was sort of a fun thing to play with. So, it's I think when once you get it all put together, having the story from the beginning when the French are getting on the ship and they're coming over and the parallels between then and, and now with this COVID-19 thing really interests me. Then the next chapter will be um, that year when they were in um, Rhode Island and Los Angeles Legion was in Connecticut and the comments about the pretty girls and the dinners and the things that they ate. And actually, one of the things that fascinates me is how respectful and interested these elegant Frenchmen are of George Washington. They really was like a, I don't know, like like little kids who are worshiping a, a movie star or something. It's, it's very interesting how, and they are under very strict orders to behave themselves. They're not um, allowed to be fussy or to um, do anything that would cause trouble and one of the uh, Americans actually wrote how how amazed he was at how polite these uh, French kids were and that for well you know they're young soldiers are young today they're still young <laughs> but uh, Blanchard was probably the oldest and he was in his early 40s so I, I think seeing it through their own eyes and what what Americans commented because they they were used to French Huguenots. Some of my own ancestors were French Huguenots who had left because they were persecuted by the Catholics and early on and had come over with the English and the Dutch. And so the Rhode Islanders are very suspicious. Here come a bunch of Catholics and what are they going to do, right? So the, their perspective is uh, very different. Norm Desmaris, you might want to have on sometime, talks about why uh, why these soldiers were um, um, uncertain of their welcome and why the Americans thought they didn't like the French and how it ends up being this wonderful partnership between two countries and how much they enjoy each other. So it's, it's, uh, it's a different kind of a, a story when you hear it from their own perspective. Kim Burdick, Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. appreciate it. Bye-bye. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long. <laughs>